Welcome to the First United Methodist Church podcast. Coming up, Lawrence McCleskey and the Planned Giving Seminar, recorded on Wednesday, April 18th, 2018. Well, thanks for coming. Uh, I want to say just a thing or two uh, at the outset about the church's uh, endowment. You've heard me talk about it uh, last couple of Sundays. Uh, started about eight years ago. Uh, when we realized, uh, it, when the leaders at that, to that time realized it, it would be a source of uh, great support for the church and the community going forward. And when the uh, endowment was begun, it had about $200,000 in it. It's now got over a million and a half, and that's in eight years because of bequests and gifts. Uh, it. Uh, Helps with scholarships. Tyler talked about the dollars for scholars, the dollars for scholars money and the foundation money, endowment money, are how we're able to give those scholarships to young people here in the church uh, every year. Uh, there's a fund in there that puts flowers in the sanctuary from time to time. There's a fund that supports the music program. There's a fund that supports the youth program. These are all designated gifts. Uh, there are a couple of funds that give the pastors discretionary money that they can use with uh, people who come from the community with emergency needs. And then we have what's called the General Endowment Fund, which is for undesignated gifts. And that was the money I was talking about Sunday that goes, uh, and this year is going to support the uh, middle school program. Uh, just to give you an idea of what the uh, endowment uh, provides, the committee uh, determines annually the amount uh, of, to be distributed from the earnings, and we have tended to follow the recommendation from the Conference Foundation, which is to take 4% of the trailing three-year average. You look at the last three years, uh, what is earned, average that, take 4% of that, and that's what's available for use in any given year. To give you an idea of how the growth has affected that, uh, last year in 20. 17, the distribution from the uh, endowment amounted to about $15,000. This year, 2018, it was a little over $25,000. And we've had significant gifts to the uh, endowment since the distribution was uh, decided on this year, so that next year it will be even more than that and will continue to grow. And all the time the corpus is protected, so this will go on. Uh, for generations, uh, literally. Uh, there are several members of the uh, endowment committee here, and I want you to know who they are. Uh, we're glad to talk with anybody uh, about that. Uh, Steve McNeil. Steve is the secretary of the committee. Karen McClure. Karen's a member of the committee. Steve Ellis, member of the committee. I. <laughs> Keith is the staff person who relates to the committee. And the other members are Mary Ann Way, who's not able to be here tonight, and uh, Woody Griffin, who had planned to be here, but his brother died this week, and so Woody's in Winston-Salem. Uh, anyhow, we're glad to have with us tonight uh, the executive director of the Conference Foundation, which is where most of the money from our endowment is invested. Uh, there's a little bit uh, held by Edward Jones because the person who donated it set it up that way. Uh, and so uh, they hold a little of the funds, but the most of the money is held uh, by the Conference Foundation. The Reverend David Snipes, uh, who's been a friend of mine for a long time and a friend of others in this room. David is the executive director of the Conference Foundation. I'm going to ask him to come and uh, share with us, and he will present Susan to you uh, as we proceed. Thank you, Bishop. Um, I don't. We haven't prayed, have we? Well, you know, I'm Keith a, did. Keith, <laughs> there. Was your prayer good? Here. <laughs> no, we I'm not sure here. that was a good enough prayer. <laughs> Actually, well, so, David and Keith were in seminary together. I, I was just getting ready to say I'm picking on Keith. I've known Keith since uh, since back in the early '90s when we were both students at Candler School of Theology and. Uh, 
Keith ended up starting a church kind of in my, uh, right outside my hometown, which is right outside of Salisbury and Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And that church now you wouldn't believe because of the good work that, that Keith did, your pastor did. And uh, my understanding is he's doing great work now and we are, we're most grateful for your ministry, Keith. Uh, and also most grateful for um, the work that your team as the endowment committee has done here. Um, I saw Wani Harden out there. I think he was manning the coffee. And uh, Wani had me come in here probably 10 years ago or more uh, to start working uh, with the team and to, and to building this endowment up. And of course, Jane Wood, who is a colleague of mine and a member at your church, and now Bishop McCleskey, uh, who I served with when my office was at the conference center when, when he was our resident bishop. Um, so I kind of feel like I'm coming home, y'all. It's, it, it's, it's really neat to be here. And uh, I am most grateful for the partnership. There's Wani now. Wani, I just took your name in vain. The, um, one of the things that, before I introduce Susan Cothern, I, I want to share with you, because the way we look at what we do at the foundation is that we are a part of a larger ministry throughout the Western North Carolina Conference. And you are a part of that larger ministry through the things that you offer here at First United Methodist Church, Waynesville. And our goal is to help simply and plainly, you'll see on our letterhead, our tagline is to build the church for generations to come. And we do that in a variety of ways. You experience not only fund management from us where we invest your monies in socially responsible ways. Bishop shared with you, you, you subscribe to our recommended spending policy. Um, we invest those for you along with all the other monies that are invested throughout the Western North Carolina Conference as well as churches and other institutions. But that's only a part of what we do. Um, we come in and do education related to endowment development, plan giving. We do leadership education. One of the times I was in the room where we were in today was we had a conference-wide stewardship initiative that Bishop McCleskey required all clergy people appointed at the time to go to these events, and one of those was held here. Um, we have a loan program. So if, if a church is, needs to borrow some money and they need to uh, buy property, renovate, build something new, we have a loan program that we encourage people to uh, turn to us. And, and as well, there's an investment side of that called our development fund, which has a competitive rate of return. So there are all sorts of, of ways in which we engage you and other churches and church-related institutions like you in helping to build the church for generations to come. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for letting us be a part of that. And thank you for what you do as you are attentive to God's call within the context of the ministries that you offer here at First Methodist. And what we want you to hear very clearly is that in whatever ways that we can partner with you or be a part of that, we hope that you will reach out to us. And if we can't do it, we will say we can't, but if it's something that we can do or it's something that we would like to explore together, then we will make every effort to try to be attentive to that and see where God leads us. So, thank you. Susan Cothern is, um, I always joke and say that no matter where she goes, or who she meets, she's either related to them or she's uh, met them somewhere before that, what, five degrees of separation. Um, Susan is not unfamiliar to especially this area of the state and the Western North Carolina Conference. She has served uh, up until August of this past year on the staff of Brevard College where she was the Director of Development. I met Susan when I went to the foundation 17 years ago and she was serving in the development office there and we worked together to bring some donors who had special interest in, in Brevard College 
and trying to put them together with different vehicles in ways that they could support Brevard College uh, through the financial resources that have been entrusted to them through God. And so when we had an opportunity here uh, 16 years later uh, as an opening on our staff, uh, it seemed like God was calling us to Susan and Susan to us. So uh, for those of you that don't know her, I encourage you to get to know her if you feel like you would like to explore some of the things that she's going to share with you in more depth. But I will also warn you that you better hold on because she is nonstop <laughs> and brings a wonderful energy to what we do at the foundation. So uh, with that said, I want to introduce to you Susan Cothern. She is our Director of Client Relations at the foundation. Can y'all hear me if I don't use the microphone? I usually, okay, is, it, is that okay with everybody? Because I usually speak loudly enough that if I'm amplified, people are like, stop. <laughs> so I want to tell you how delightful, and Becky might hate me because I move around a lot. I want to tell you how much I appreciate being here and how much I appreciate being at the foundation. As David said, he and I have worked together since I first started at Brevard College in November of 2001. I was not yet quite 30. And so now for over 20 years, my history has been, and I love what you're doing with Dollars for Scholars. We've had a number of students at Brevard College that have, been, have come with some of those scholarships over the years. And so philanthropy to me, is, it's much more than has been my career for the past 20 years. It is truly something that I'm passionate about because in 20 years, I hear people say, I wish I could do more, more for my church, more for my community. And so what, what I'm hoping to do tonight is share with you ways and stories. I will tell a lot of stories as I go through this. If you have questions, please ask, because I'd really love for this to be interactive and a dialogue about how some of these mechanisms you might could use in your own planning or your planning with your family that, that maybe you haven't thought about. So with that, why is it important? I always think it's much more important to start with the why than the what. And why is because, and I love that you have the, you said the endowment started eight years ago and over a million and a half dollars. I, I love that. Every church I go into, I encourage every church, I don't care how large they are, to have an endowment fund, even an endowment document, even if it's unfunded, because... A lot of the, what we're going to talk about today with legacy gifts and with people giving through, from their estate, they want to give it to an organization that is planful and thoughtful, which is what the endowment is going to indicate to them. There is going to be a, a, a perpetual nature to what you bequeath, what you saved for all of your life, and how we are going to spend those dollars that you've been frugal and saved for. So you can't see the... Yeah. Can you? So people give to charitable organizations, in this case we're going to say Waynesville First United Methodist Church, because they care about the organization and to leave a legacy, to do something that is bigger than themselves and, and will, as you said, plant the tree for others to sit under. The why is always where I start conversations when people talk to me. Why is this important and what do you want to accomplish? And then back into how we can make that happen. And then, as you think about that, why is it important that the church continue to exist? And I ask this a lot in, in smaller churches where it's really important that as people are thinking about how they are going to sustain their church going forward. And what, what role does it play in your life, the life of your family? Your family's been in this church for generations, huh? In this area. So I always... I, 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 will recurrently come back to the question of why when I'm talking to people about legacy gifts because it's not about the money. It's about what the money can do for the people who give it and then also, obviously, the recipients years and generations down the road. We have a lot of different types of legacy gifts or plan giving, and so I'm going to just hit the highlights of any of these and like I said please if you have any specific questions I don't mention um, just let me know because I really want to talk 
appreciated, appreciated securities. A lot of people do not know that they can gift stock to a, a nonprofit. And so if people do give appreciated securities, they get immediate tax deduction for the full market value of the stock. You can avoid capital gains taxes that you would pay if you were to cash that out. It's, it's definitely a tax preferable gift uh, to cash gifts for donors in higher tax brackets. And then, oh, a word of caution. If you give shares, you should have held them for a year. A lot of times people don't know that if they get that, they may want to give them. But you need to hold it for a year to maximize your tax benefit. And y'all have a stockbroker that you can probably do that through, don't you? Okay, because the, the foundation will broker those for the church at no cost. That's, a, that's another, another service that we provide. A will. Do, do y'all know, so I'm going to ask some questions just to get some... Do y'all know how many people die with no will statistically? 75%. It's a little bit lower than that, but not much. It's 60%. 60%. 60. 60. And I had a call yesterday from a man in a church in up near Winston, in the Triad area, and it is a family, pretty well known, and they have a lot of a large farm, and a probably about 250, 300 rental units. And he shared with me that he has no will. And he wants me to go work with him to figure out how he can structure his his will. And of course, I will be the first to tell you I'm not a certified financial planner or a tax accountant or an attorney. So I always give people options and then say, please take this to your own financial planner, your own attorney. Make sure that it makes sense in the big scheme of your plan, your overall plan. But he said, I'm you know, embarrassed to say I don't have a will. <laughs> um, I know from working in philanthropy for over 20 years, there's a lot of things, a lot of reasons people don't have one. What I will tell people is if you don't have one, you do. <laughs> You know, your state, your state is going to go down, and they are going to distribute your estate according to the law, and they have no vested interest. So um, I will also tell you that I'm arguing with my parents about getting theirs finalized right now <laughs> so that, um, because I want to know, they're, they're rewriting it some, so I want them, I want to know that I'm carrying out their wishes, and everything they cared for and that they saved for is tended to when they aren't here to speak for themselves. So, ten, the, the short list, uh, it's just a little thing I found, 10 reasons to have a will. Obviously, you decide how your estate will be distributed. If you have minor children, obviously, it's, it's more than critical that you have those wishes spelled out. Probate process. Not only the length, but the cost uh, the, of your estate that will be eroded if you do not have some specifics. Um, it, it'll... It, it will erode away at what you've, you've earned and accumulated. Minimize estate taxes. You decide the person that you know in your family of your friends that would most closely execute your wishes and be, and be really steadfast to those. I actually had a lady that I was close to at Brevard College that did not have close family, and she had asked me to be the executrix of her estate, which I could not be because I was an officer. So I actually had an alum be the executrix, but then I executed it. And it was shocking at how many people called to say that she had promised them things. And so I felt very compelled to honor her wishes when she had had told me what she wanted. Um, So although I wasn't actually it because of my position, I still was the one who made sure that we followed, and, and I just couldn't be named because of the position. But... We made sure that every penny she had went into a scholarship for her mother. So um, make gifts and donations through your will. You can disinherit people that you don't maybe want to get something. Avoid legal challenges to your estate. Change your mind if your life circumstances change. And obviously because tomorrow is not promised. So um, this is by far... One of the things I would say, I think I mentioned this to you when we talked, that that I really recommend for the church is on the back of all of your church bulletins, just print. Please remember First United uh, Methodist Church Waynesville in your will. Just as a reminder to people. 
And I will, I want to add to this because I will be honest with you. I, I do put my money where my mouth is. I'm, I'll be 54 this November, but I've been at the foundation for 17 years. And until I started the foundation, my wife and I did not have a will. And going to the foundation prompted me. I knew if I was going to be sitting in front of you preaching and teaching it that I had to do it. And so often, especially when you, those of you that have children that are younger, um, they think, well, we've got time to do that. We don't have to do that right now. But what we would really encourage is that there's no time like the present, no matter how old you are, to go ahead and get that will set up. Then if you need to make adjustments as your family situation, your life changes, then do so. Mm-hmm. That, that would be one thing. Yes? What type of professionals uh, should you seek out to start a will? You mentioned a, you know, a few financial advisor, attorney. Uh, who, who should you talk to, attorney? Or? I would recommend an estate planning attorney. Usually um, they will have a booklet that they'll ask you to fill out before you come talk to them, which will list your assets. I mean, there's even things in wills now which are like moral, um, ethical wills. And it's kind of a, if something were to happen to you, what would be the thing you would want your children to know ethically about you? Those kind of things. But, um, but I would say start with an estate planning attorney. They're, they're going to give you the packet, and, and it's not an expensive or lengthy process. And then if you decide you want to change it, you have the option of changing your entire will or adding a codicil to it. Is that what you? Yes, and we have. And, and the other thing is because at the time when we set up our will, we had young children. And so through that whole process, we designated who would, who would take the kids, we set up a trust that would be to their benefit and their well-being. We went ahead and set up a trust that actually is still with the United Methodist Foundation that will then be used in conjunction with our donor advice fund to help support ministry moving forward. So there, there are a lot of different moving parts based on where you are in your life and your family life cycle. But that's the wonderful thing. You get it done, and then you just make tweaks or, or fine-tune it as your life situation changes. Anybody else have anything to add or ask? Thank you for the question. If you don't want to spend a lot of money, you can go online and get more. Well, that's true. You can do the online as well. If you have a simple, what you want to make out when you're fairly young, you don't have to spend a lot of money on an attorney. You're right. And then just have that in a place. In, in North Carolina, it's it's absolutely respected, so that's another option for you, too. You said go online, is that what you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and you could and you could do that, and then if there was something that you weren't comfortable with, and, and and you can even get the usually the information packets from an estate planning attorney that you could fill out and then use that to to use your will. And there's also something called a five wishes that you can have to augment that as far as your um, power of attorney, your your health care attorney, that kind of thing. So, thank you for that. I appreciate you. The five wishes. Oh yeah, <laughs> that'll just, that'll definitely make you get ready to to fill out a will if you have like a toe injury or something. I've over I've over um, anal, analyzed my own aches and pains. Huh? No. <laughs> um, I'm a lawyer, so I was being sarcastic. Oh. I think you're taking a real risk if you just pull something off. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, things, are, things are more complicated for anybody, almost anybody. Well, what would you suggest? I mean, you would say no, the same go to an estate planning attorney yeah, and get yeah. the packet and then go in. and. Yeah, most of them around here are, not, are, are, are pretty reasonably priced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You want to spend a lot of money, go to Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bartered for mine in, in Brevard <laughs> with mine. Charitable gift annuity is another way. Um, I'll talk about two planned gift instruments that can provide life income for people. Uh, Charitable gift annuity is the first. And these are are typically instruments for people that are, it says on here, over 70 years of age. But 65 to 70 is is, uh, a a good time to start thinking about a charitable gift annuity. At the foundation, we 
work with charitable gift annuities up to $100,000. If someone wants to make a life income gift that's, that's over 100000 then we move to a trust, either an annuity trust or a unit trust. The gift annuities do provide uh, income tax charitable deductions immediately at the time the gift is made, and then they also provide fixed payments for life for you and your spouse, um, a portion of which is also tax-free because it's some of the taxation on the income that you get later, but some of it is tax-free. And so I put a, just a simple charitable gift annuity illustration up here that this illustrates that someone would have given $25,000. This would be a cash gift because there's no cost basis. So $25,000 is given as the annuity that's invested and then based on the donor's ages determines the amount of payout to the to the donors and then in this case a $25,000 gift John 73 Jane 70 would be a 4.7% annuity which would generate income annually of $1,175 and then at the end of their lives, there's approximately, the annuity is structured to hopefully maintain the gift amount that would go to the charity. So this illustration shows that the annuity would be 4.7% and then 25,000 would be left. In this case, of course, if we were talking about to the endowment here at the church or to create your own endowment here at the church. Any questions about annuity? I want to make a comment about this. First of all, you can go to our website, and if you look under the tab for individuals, you can actually go in and play around by at, you know putting in your dollar amount, what your cost basis is, how old you are, and, it, and you just play around mm -hmm. and look at what the possibilities are. Uh, the other thing that I would say, and, and this is where I told Susan this presentation makes me a little nervous is that when we show that the $25,000 could go to the charity at the end, um, we don't know that because we don't know what the market's going to do. This is invested in an equities market. As Susan said, the goal is, is to try to, just like what we do with your endowment, we try to invest it in a way such that it will preserve the principal but yet spend some income off for you to, to do ministry. Same thing here. We're investing it, we're trying to uh, spend some, the income off, at, which is designated by American Council of Gift Annuities based on the ages of these two donors. But there is no guarantee. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that, if you go, reflect back on when I told you I came to the foundation, I was hired in October of 2001, one month after 9-11. So I went through the downturn in the economy happening right after that. Then I was told, you know, oh, that was a 100-year flood. You'll never see it again. And then what happened in 2008 and 2009? And so what happened was some donors who established these charitable gift annuities, the market tanked, and then when they passed away, we call it the triggering event, which causes us to pay out then to the charitable beneficiary, um, the, the market value of the annuity had dropped. Well, what had they told the church? Well, when I die, you're going to get $25,000. Mm -hmm. So, we, you know, the, the disclaimers are on the contracts. Mm -hmm. We invest it in good faith, but we do not have control. Our, our foundation would not be the fourth largest foundation in United Methodism. It would be the largest United Methodist foundation in United Methodism if we knew how to beat the market mm -hmm. and could control it. So, I want to make sure you hear that very clearly. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because this, the, it's the, the, all of the projections, of course, are calculated on life expectancies, and, and I have a beloved lady who is concerned at Brevard. She has one, and she's now lived to 102, and she understands that then it's a liability for the college. So you're right. It, it, it's a projection. Can you tell us how you diversify those investments? We do. Uh, we have four different fund options that we offer, and these are invested in our diversified fund like an endowment would be invested. 
And so that diversified fund is unique to endowment type monies, meaning that not only are those monies invested in perpetuity, but we're also trying to beat inflation, any expenses related to the fund, and to generate that income off of it. And if you want to see our investment policy statement is on our website under resources, it's the tab on the far right. And then if you go to all resources, it's an alphabetical order there. And you're welcome to print it off and look at it. If you have insomnia one night, that's what I would suggest you do. <laughs> and our diversified fund is 70% equities and 30% fixed income. Any other questions about the annuity? And I appreciate you talking about that. As I mentioned, if, if there were a plan gift for over 100000 we would we would talk about a trust, which is particularly helpful, again, for people who want to gift appreciated assets. And these the, the trusts include Charitable Remainder Annuity Trust, Charitable, charitable Remainder Unit Trust, and Charitable Lead Trust. And again, it provides income for you and your family. And I told Bishop McCluskey there was a story I wanted to tell you. It was... In early November, I got a call from a minister in Mars Hill, from a pastor in Mars Hill. I grew up Baptist. Um, <laughs> so, um, grew up Baptist. So I got a, a call from a pastor in Mars Hill. He said, we have a part-time attendee. He's not a member of the church. He, he's here part-time. He's in, on the coast for the rest of the year, and he wants to do something for the church. Can you call him? That was all he knew. He wanted to do something for the church. So I called this gentleman. I said, I'm happy to called him and I said, I understand you want to do something for your church, but I really don't know any more than that. Can you tell me what you have in mind? And so he said, well, I know he's 84, his wife is 80. He said, I don't know if we will need the income, but I I feel like I need to set something up so that we have some income if if we need it. I don't want to just give this yet without knowing what what provisions I need to make. So I said, okay, so I knew we were going to look at either an annuity or a trust. Well, then when we started talking, it was going to be in excess of $100,000. So so we are going to talk about a trust. Is this a one-time gift? Is this something you might want to add to? I think I want to add to it. I want to do some of it this year and some of it next year to split out my, my tax deductions. I said, okay. So we started talking about numbers, and I said, well, what do you want to use to fund this? Is this going to be a cash gift? If you have appreciated assets, I highly recommend we look at that. It turns out he had bought Amazon stock for next to nothing. <laughs> so, so I said, oh, well, and, and then he said, and I, and I haven't been able to touch it because I'm going to be penalized on it. So I said, well, let's talk about what you might want to gift and tell me what your cost basis was. So I'm going to fast forward. We were able to look at a gift for him. His, he, and now he has made two gifts to the Unitrust. Make a gift for him that was a little less than half a million dollars. And he and his wife, so he, and he had such little cost basis in the amount that he got a huge um, tax, uh, he got a tax deduction and, and avoided capital gains taxes, which was his primary benefit as he avoided the capital gains tax. But he did get the tax deduction. He and his wife have access to income for life, and he has decided that if he doesn't need it, he's going to use their income payment to be the gift back to the church <laughs> for that year. So, again, because he will have already paid income on it, he can get a further tax deduction if he gives the gift. So he was beyond ecstatic, and he ended up creating not only one endowment for his current church, he created an endowment also for his childhood church. And he had no idea. It just started a conversation of, I want to do something. And, you know, it was kind of that, I want to do more. And so we were able to work it out. And so he said, would you do me a favor? Would you send a letter to the churches telling them? I was like, yeah, yeah, I will. And so both the pastors called me, and they were excited. And so it was a win-win for everybody. And that's what... That's what I love about this, is to have those conversations to see what is best for him. And then obviously the church now, two churches, have endowments that are going to perpetuate the churches. So that's, I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to this stuff for these reasons. So do y'all have any questions about trust? The, the difference in annuity trust, you can create with a gift and then you can't add to it anymore. Then it's it's its own standalone trust if you, and in this case, uh, Mr. Waller's case, he knew that he wanted to add to it, and so that's why we created the Unitrust versus the 
annuity trust. And of course, a charitable lead trust is if you want to create something to benefit a charity now, and then upon your death, it would revert to your children. Because there's also, uh, when people say, well, I don't know, I'd like to leave something for my children, that is a, a, a trust that you can also use to benefit the church now and have the money revert later. Susan, I, w I would love to share. Uh, we, For those of you that have been in conference leadership over the years, there's a family named the Ripple family, Clint and Francis Ripple, out of First Methodist in Lexington. Uh, Clint was a faithful United Methodist, served on the board of the Children's Home in Winston-Salem for years. He also played football for Lenore Ryan College. And he contacted the foundation, said, I have a piece of property that developers want to buy and put a housing development on it. So what we did, he gifted the property to the foundation. We turned around, sold the timber on it, then turned around and sold the, the property to a developer. We took the proceeds from those sales, funded a trust that paid out to Francis and Clint. Francis passed away first, unfortunately, then Clint passed away next. Then it flipped over, had a flip, what we call a flip provision, and it is paying out for 15 years to his three children. Then once it's paid out for three years, I'm sorry, three children for 15 years, after that 15 year period, then what is left in the trust, 25% uh, will go to First Methodist in Lexington, 25% will go to the children's home in Winston-Salem, and 50% will go to Lenore Ryan College mm -hmm. for a scholarship. So one of the things that I would say to you about the charitable gift annuity and the charitable remainder trust is that because we are a United Methodist institution of the conference for the conference, created by the Western North Carolina Conference, at least 50% of the charitable proceeds that you would name in a planned gift, like what Susan has just talked about, it needs to go to United Methodist Ministries. Not necessarily in Western North Carolina, mm -hmm. but United Methodist Ministries. Not necessarily churches. But I can tell you, you, you might be saying to yourselves, especially those on the team, and Bishop McCleskey being the leader of the team, you're saying, well, we only want the money if they're going to give it to us for our endowment <laughs> program. But the reality is, is that sometimes the way you get somebody to let go of it is to give them the options to say not only for the endowment here at First Methodist in Waynesville, but also the other charities or ministries that I love as well. And I know the community here in, in Waynesville, there's such a commitment to the community and the arts and the growth that as your town has seen, it would not surprise me that, if you, that you would not have somebody that would want to split that charitable beneficiary between the church and something else. Mm -hmm. So don't, uh, I guess the, the best thing I could say about that is to open the doors wide, even if it means another charity is going to walk through with you, including Brevard College. Well, that's, <laughs> as David was saying that, I was thinking that's really how I first developed the relationship is when... Um, when Glenn was in this position years ago, back in 2002, 2003, I realized that there were people who wanted to do something more for Brevard College, but they also wanted to do something for First United Methodist across the street and or the music center, center and or the, the hospital. And if I was going to not be more creative with them and insist that we had to go through our commercial lender, who, who at that point was holding our annuities, that wasn't very donor-centric from my perspective and so that's really kind of how our relationship first started is I said let's work together to do something that's more thoughtful because at that time it was more of our alumni more of our Methodist alumni at Brevard College and I just really wanted them to have some options that fit their needs um, and so by all means um, as a matter of fact the, the two churches that I was saying benefited from this gentleman's trust one of them is in Virginia it, that was where he grew up, so it was his childhood church in Virginia outside of our conference. And then this is an illustration of the charitable remainder unit trust. If there is a property value of 400000 and it's got a cost basis of 200000 then, again, David said you can go through these. Um, 
online, but it shows what percentage is, is avoiding some income tax deduction for him. What he, in this particular case, in a unit trust, you actually get to decide your percent payout. You establish your own percent payout. So I ran this with a 5%, which is the minimum that a unit trust will pay out. And so basically, when I ran this, our actual trust returns were 6.4% for the past three years. So with a 5% payout, it shows it would grow by 1.4% and actually 560 would be left to the, to the charity. That's a projection, <laughs> assuming that everything is like year 2017 was, which it's not. Um, do y'all have any questions about any of the trust or any comments? haven't you uh, allowed for that undesignated in, in the general fund yeah the way the way it works with the churches in endowment we've got we've got designated funds like some of the named scholarship funds for instance uh, or the youth fund or the pastor's discretionary fund but we have a fund and it is actually now the largest fund in our endowment uh, well yeah it's the largest uh, called uh, the General Endowment Fund. Uh, and any undesignated gifts to the endowment are placed in that General Endowment Fund. It's part of the, the whole endowment, but the General Endowment Fund. And the leadership team makes the decisions each year about where those, the proceeds from that particular part of the endowment will go. So the leadership team decided on the after-school program. If they wanted to put them somewhere else, they would make that decision as well. But any undesignated, the verbiage, I guess, in terms of First United Methodist uh, for un an undesignated gift would be to say the general endowment fund of the church. So for so your verbiage. What's that? Is that what you're looking for? Well, it's not going to go to the general endowment because it would be coming directly to the church. Well, so if a gift comes, it, it, it can, it gets a little complicated, but let me try it. Uh, and I'm, I'm going back to the uh, documents that set up the endowment. Wani was chair when that was done. If a gift is, is if it's stated in a gift or a bequest, that it is for the general endowment fund of First United Methodist Church, then it goes into that fund that the leadership team makes a decision about. If a bequest comes simply to First United Methodist Church, then the endowment committee makes a recommendation to the leadership fund of where in the endowment to put that bequest if it just says First United Methodist Church. Our practice has always been to recommend that it be put into the General Endowment Fund. So either way, uh, it, it, whether it's to First United Methodist Church or to the General Endowment Fund of First United Methodist Church, uh, that would be uh, the, the direction it would go. And ma'am, this would be one of those conversations that I think would, would either be helpful with the church leadership, Bishop McCleskey, or if, if there's a way that Susan and I can help. Because the, the idea is, is that you want to fulfill the donor's intent, your intent. What are you passionate about that you want to see funded moving forward? Let me give you an example for, since I've been on the committee and uh, several others of you were. 
we received the bequest a year and a half or so ago, uh, and, and in the bequest it was worded that it was for First United Methodist Church. Didn't say any more, just the bequest to First United Methodist Church. The family of the person who made that bequest had conversation with me and I then with the uh, committee to say the, this person, this member of our family who left this gift was interested in uh, particularly children and youth ministry but didn't designate it per se, wanted to leave it undesignated but had that particular interest. We talked about it, we recommended we being the endowment committee, we recommended to the leadership team that that bequest be put in the general endowment fund. That bequest is principally the one that made it possible for us then, out of that general endowment fund, to support the after school, middle school program. Uh, that's a long, it, it sometimes takes a lot of discussion in the committee to end up putting it where it needs to go. But in that particular instance, we were influenced by the recommendations of the family of the person who left the gift to do what that person wanted uh, done with it, even though it wasn't specifically spelled out as such. I, this may be, I hope it's not too confusing. No, I mean, I, I understand, uh, and, and I can get with Steve, too. Steve, Steve, as a member of the committee, is very familiar with all of that. I'm going to provide her with that's, all right. That's fine. <laughs> do you have a do you have a strong preference for what you what ministry you would want it to serve? Well, here's here's I mean here's kind of my general feeling is I think that the leadership I have strong trust in the leadership team of the of the church and I think they go through things very prayerfully and heartfelt and I trust them mm -hmm. and I would rather funds go so that they're not so restricted. Mm -hmm. That they, because you know who, the flexibility. Who who would have thought we'd have a bunch of middle schoolers, right? Right. You know, music makers, and you don't know what's going to be here ten years from now. So that's where I wouldn't want to be too restricted. I really respect that. I think an unrestricted gift is the epitome of trust in the leadership, and and that is something that is really to be respected. And if trends. Uh, continue from what I've looked at the last couple of years, that uh, general endowment fund, the undesignated, will be the largest fund in the endowment into the future, uh, which gives the leadership team going forward uh, a great gift for initiating new kinds of things outside the budget. Do you have anything to add? Okay. Did that answer? Okay. Just know that we're available as well as questions come up, and we'll leave our contact information as well and want to help in whatever ways we can. Yeah. Uh, another way that people can, can give is through their IRAs. And I sent out, at the end of last year, a lot of emails to, to churches, either finance committees or pastors, reminding members that of course, anyone over 70 and a half has to take your minimum required distribution. If you, and some people do not just say, I, I wish I didn't even have to take it. If you gift that directly to your church, it does not pass through your hands. It will not create an income taxable event for you and can help your church either, in this case, go to the endowment or for some churches that really do an end-of-the-year push to help augment their annual budget. So... Um, and I've, I've had asked people, I've had church pastors say, can I just have the donor call you and you explain the process to them? And I'm happy to. Um, just to and most of the IRA uh, administrators also know if someone calls, they can calculate what the, the amount is and just get the church's 501c3 number and send it right over. And a, a note to that as well, because some people have asked us about funding a charitable gift annuity, a charitable vendor trust, setting up a donor advised fund, that type thing. Because we are a supportive organization of the United Methodist Church, we cannot take that to fund any of those charitable uh, vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, you would have to do that directly with your church. 
However, you would still, by giving it directly to the church, it would show up, and if you itemize on your taxes, then you can use that deduction uh, through that. But it cannot come through the foundation to do that because of how we're structured as a supportive uh, organization of the church. Uh, there are other gifts of retirement plans. If, if, the, if the church is named as a beneficiary of your retirement plan directly, it can avoid potential tax on retirement assets, um, receive potential estate tax savings if it's an estate tax deduction, and then your heirs could avoid income tax on any retirement assets that were funded on a pre-tax basis. And that, is it. And that would be with you, with you designating the church as a beneficiary, separate from the IRA distributions. Life insurance, of course, um, it, you can gift your life insurance policy, the, and then it would qualify for an immediate tax deduction for fair market value. It, you could deduct the premiums that you pay on your income tax returns. The church would need to be named as owner and beneficiary of the income tax, of the uh, life insurance policy. And as long as you pay the premiums, the charity's guaranteed to receive the proceeds. Oh, and I skipped, I flipped it. I, and I, one honest. of the things I didn't tell you a minute ago about the story with Francis and Clint is that when they established this trust and while they were still alive, they the, the property was valued total at $1.2 million. And I have permission from them and the family to share this, so I should have said that initially. $1.2 million total to fund it. They took out a million dollar life insurance policy and through the annual payments of that charitable trust, paid the premium on the insurance so that when they passed away, then it was split, the life insurance was split three ways between their three kids. Plus, remember I told you, there was a flip provision, so when Clint passed away, they ended up getting the payment for the next 15 years. So that's how life insurance as well can come into this, not only from a charitable benefit where you would name the church as the or, or an endowment as the charitable beneficiary, but you can leverage that so that not only your heirs, your children or grandchildren, whomever are cared for, but you've also taken care of the charitable intent that you have. There, there are a lot of unique ways that you can work these relationships but many people just don't realize the possibilities are there. So that would be the, the team's goal would be to say, hey, there are opportunities for you to do this, and here are just some of them. So. Donor advised funds. David, do you want to talk about, pop yeah, back up and talk about My donor wife and I, Debbie, have a donor advised fund, and basically, plainly and simply, there are, uh, in your community foundation here, Pat Smith, I think, who used to run that, that foundation, I know well through Givens Estates. Um, basically, you make a gift to your donor advice fund, and then you advise where the charitable benefit is to go. And what you're doing is you establish the donor advice fund. When you make the gift to the donor advice fund, whether it's cash or appreciated stock, you get the tax deduction in the year that you make that transfer into the donor advised fund, but then you can turn around and say, well, I want, to, I want some of it to go to First Methodist, I want some of it to go to the Western North Carolina Community Foundation, I want it to go to the Arts Guild here in, in Waynesville, and basically what it does is just a central way of making your charitable gifts. One of the things that I would caution you on is that, and, and you all are smarter than this and you wouldn't do this, but there are people that try to double dip with the IRS and they say, well, in the year that I put the money into the donor advice fund, I got a charitable benefit on my, because I itemize on my taxes. So then they think when they advise and then the money goes out from the charitable donor advice fund that they're gonna get another tax deduction and that is not the way it works, that's double dipping. And it's against the law. <laughs> so, so, but that's up to that's up to the individual and the donor to do to, to deal with that with their accountant and how they file their taxes. We will acknowledge receipt of the gift in the year that you put it into the donor advice fund. Donor advice funds can also not be used 
to fulfill pledges. So the people that want to fulfill their pledge to the annual operating budget, that, because it, it, it's a play on words, you're advising the board of directors of the foundation where to send that money. But once you give the money to the donor advice fund, you have technically, legally lost control of it. Technically and legally, according to the IRS. Okay? So we can, we can if, if you have an interest in that, we can talk more about it. But. The, the last thing I have on the slide for plan giving is real estate. And the, and the foundation itself does not handle real estate transactions. But I did include some, some information. Um, if you did have a, a church member that wanted to gift real estate, that they can qualify again for the, the fair market value. It, it can eliminate capital gains tax exposure. There is a stringent, I can't say this high, uh, strongly enough, a stringent due diligence process that I would recommend if, if a gift of land is being offered. And, and again, I made, I made a note that, that we ourselves don't handle it. But, um, but I include that because it is often uh, something that comes up when people want to donate gifts of real estate, land, property to nonprofits. And let me tell you why we don't. Because people want to give the old service station with leaky gas tanks or the uh, shopping center that had a uh, uh, dry cleaners in it. So one of the things, if, if the church accepts a piece of property, you need to make sure that you fulfill your due diligence yeah. and you do the phase one environmental impact study, you get a clear title on it, you have you do all of the tests, have the survey, make sure you know what you're getting. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, Property can be a challenge, and, and we would just caution you about that. When I started at the foundation, and this was in the in the presentation, David said, now, I don't know, you're, you may not like to hear this, but the foundation doesn't do real estate, and I think I literally got out of my chair and did a little dance because I have had some really sticky situations with real estate. So, um, so that, that, it just can be a nightmare. It can be a great godsend, but you also, it's just brings in some other other things to consider. I do, again, have a disclaimer that we aren't trying to render tax or legal advice. We simply have the tools. Uh, we both have a lot of years of, of creating these instruments. I will always, 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 just like I did with Mr. Waller, say, please take these illustrations to your financial planner, your attorney. Make sure they make sense for you, not just make that they make sense in this in this transaction but that they make sense in the big scheme of your estate plan um, so there's supposed to be a thing it says thank you there's supposed to be a thank you slide so is there any any questions of anything that we covered or just anything in general about the foundation well thank you both for coming and thank you all for coming uh, very informative. We've got some materials here that uh, every, pick up one of these and take it with you. It covers what uh, David and Susan have shared with us. Uh, one quick story, and Susan, you may know about this. When I was pastor of First United Methodist Church in Gastonia, we owned a piece of property. We owned one-third interest in it. The now Aldersgate, the United Methodist home in Charlotte, owned one-third interest. And the other third interest was owned by Brevard College. Someone in years past had given this piece of property to those three entities, and they had accepted it. It was a gully what? with a power line running through, totally unusable for anything except that. And any one of the three of us would gladly have given our share to the other two. <laughs> when I was at Brevard College, we got lots of gifts out of Gastonia. I, I just to that was one of them. That, that was one of them, Lonnie. <laughs> God bless Alan Sims, Lonnie. He would talk to We couldn't yeah. give that thing away. <laughs> well, thank you for coming. Thank you all. <laughs> you probably know the folks you all do. So uh, now we will pray, and then we will we will uh, this.
this be dismissed. If you want to have any further conversation with David and Susan, I'm sure they'd be glad to do that. And be, do, uh, do, I'll put one of these over here by the door. Do pick them up. Let us pray. Gracious God, we're thankful for this church, for what it does in this community and what it does beyond the world, beyond this community, through, throughout the world. We're grateful for the Conference Foundation and what it does to enable churches to extend and expand their ministry. We're grateful for this time. Bless us now. Give us good evenings. Rest for tomorrow. And use us always for your purposes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to put these right over here, so pick one up as you go.